Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cave Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we once again have a uh, wonderful opportunity to uh, interview one of the uh, apologetic uh, uh, heroes of, uh, of our day, and uh, we've actually met him before. Uh, he came to our church, and so uh, I, I was telling him that I was uh, putting that in my email to him so I could kind of strong-arm him a little bit into <laughs> uh, uh, in- interviewing with us, uh, our little podcast here. Uh, but I want to introduce, uh, for those who don't know, to uh, J. Warner Wallace. He was a cold case homicide detective for the LAPD. He serves currently as the senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University, and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. J. Warner became a Christ follower at the age of 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skills as a detective. He eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of such books as Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith, Alive, and So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging Worldview. And he does have uh, Cold Case Christianity for Kids and I believe also God's Crime Scene for Kids as well. And a few other here and there. Uh, You can find him on Amazon Prime, uh, he's got there, or Right Now Media, if your church subscribes to that or you subscribe to that. Um, so uh, he's 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 everywhere, and uh, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you, uh, yeah, uh, Detective Wallace. Yeah. Well, I fooled you into thinking that I'm everywhere, so that's a good. Thing. <laughs> Great. And that's it. That's good. That's good. Uh, so, so 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 you're an old uh, a new baby Christian. Uh, everyone can tell that uh, it's it's the California son that uh, that has done it. So we kind of just want to get to know you and um, to to kind of hear your story. But my very first question is. Um, Knowing the people that you've sit, sat have sat across from in your cold case detective and and your homicide detective, how does it feel coming on to any show where you know that you've you've been in front of worse people before? Like yeah, that must uh, center you really well. Yeah, it, it does. Like a lot of the times, you have motives and you have a um, um, a goal in your interviews when you're talking to somebody across the table from you who you know has committed a crime those conversations right it's hard, kind of hard not to be really goal focused right but you know i get to the truth so those are generally a little more antagonistic in the sense that they're not uh cordial it's not like y'all don't want to learn about you well no actually i already know everything about you i want you to get to this issue you know, so, <laughs> no it's not it's you're right it's not nearly as uh as much fun it's just having a conversation. I think what, but I will tell you this, the more I learned to just have a conversation with people I'm, I'm talking to, to get to know them on a personal level, which I never did before I became a Christian, um, hmm. the, the better uh, I maintain some relationships with the guys we put in jail. Uh, I know that some of these guys, when they come out, I'll, I'll probably be able to, if they ever do come out, I'll probably, uh, they might want to contact me at some point. Um, so I think that um, those are things that only happened because I had a shift in my thinking. You know, I was 35 before that shift took place. I did a lot of cases, did a lot of really long interviews with robbery suspects and homicide suspects before I became a Christian. And my attitude was different in those days. You know, you have a tendency to see yourself as the good guy. Uh, and I did that. I mean, I, I was on the job about eight years before I was provoked to look at the Gospels. And I remember uh, that my approach to people was different. Uh, you know, you, you, you didn't realize, I mean, I, you always kind of, nobody comes to faith in Christianity and Jesus as savior until they first understand their own need for a savior. Right. And well, in those days, I didn't see myself. I was one of the good guys taking bad guys to jail. Yeah, you need, you need that, to understand the bad news before you can know, know the good, good news. Right. Yeah, no, that's so true. And, and, and so I had a different view 
Um, and my partners for years afterwards still had that view where they would say, hey, if we're good people, mm-hmm. we take bad people to jail. Right. If there's a good God and a good heaven, we'll be there because we are good people. Right. So there's a sense in which, you know, the, the unregenerate, the, the, the pre-Christian version of me um, really saw this this difference between the people we were taking to jail and the people that were investigating the people we took to jail. Really, after becoming a Christian, it became pretty clear to me that um, there wasn't a big distinction between those two groups, you know, that that I really was, but for the grace of God, could easily be on the other side of the table, yeah. especially working cold cases, because cold cases are, are murders that are usually committed by just average regular people hmm. who then spend the next 25 years living in a way that you would never, ever, ever guess they committed a murder 25 years ago. Yeah. I don't work serial killers. I work you know, single murders that are committed by regular people who get away with it. And then they kind of live an ordinary life for the next 35 years until they want to get convicted. So it's really, um, it helped me to understand that I'm not much different than that. And that changes the way you interview people. That changes the way you talk to anybody when you realize I'm not so different than you. So, so that did change the way my interviews took place. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so, uh, uh, p- kind of put us in a in a, uh, a setting and, and a time period for um, w- when you uh, first got into your detective work, and then uh, essentially uh, what caused you to start questioning kind of uh, uh, Christianity, or or what was it that was kind of the catalyst that got you started? I think a lot of it um, is, was just my, my wife was interested in, and had a, had a good um, uh, kind of a cultural experience with uh, her mom, who was Catholic, growing up to the point where she felt like this was something maybe we should consider when we're raising our own kids. Now, I, we had been together about 18 years before she convinced me to go to church. And uh, as she was able to do that, I was more than willing. I just thought I would be going as an attendee. Right. I mean, like if somebody wanted you to go on a chick flick with your wife, you really <laughs> wouldn't want to see that. Would you be willing to go because your wife wants to see that movie? Of course you would, I would think. And if that happened every week, would you be willing to go? I think you would. You might at least be three or four, three out of the four weeks. You might be willing to go see that movie. Yeah. That's kind of how I considered, you know, this, my approach to this. I can go um, and, you know, I might even get something out of it. Uh, it doesn't have to be true in order for it to have value, especially if it helps us raise our kids. Mm-hmm. That was my view. Interesting. Um, so I was now, did I mock the Christians that I met? Yeah, I did. Uh, and the people who knew me who also enjoyed because a lot of the Christians we met were people we were taken to jail and those were easy to mock. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people that we would kind of make fun of were the people who um, we thought this, whatever these Christians are like, they're not very good people <laughs> because they're doing all these crimes yeah. they go in their house after they've done a murder 25 years ago. And you'll find I remember one guy went in his house after he did this murder years earlier, we're going there for the interviews. And I found about 12 years of Bible studies in mm. his living room. And I just thought, here we go. This is it. Right. So I, I just, I, I was condescending for the most part, but I wasn't out to prove it wrong. Like my friend Lee Strobel, when Leslie became a Christian, I, I he really did, it bothered him and he was out to prove it wrong. And you know, his story in case for Christ is different than mine. I, I didn't think this was worth even investigating. In other words, you don't investigate the existence of, you know, uh, the, you know, the Easter bunny. Right. This is, this is the kind of category that I had this in so that it made no sense to me to uh, even take it seriously. But the pastor in this church that my wife just decided we might, we should attend was clever enough. 
he, he know he knew he had unbelievers in that room and he described Jesus as the smartest man who ever lived. He described Jesus as a historical character who had such great influence over the course of history that all history was somehow changed, that we were in this ripple effect. We were in the ripples of this stone that had been dropped in history. And, and everything we were experiencing, we were just riding the cascading ripples of this event. And I thought to myself, if that was true, I should be able to investigate that to see if that's true, right? I mean, I should be able to see, well, number one, why do we think he's so smart? And number two, why did he have the kind of, did he, does he really, look, I, I lived in Southern California and I still live in the same area. And I will tell you, growing up in Los Angeles County, I had no problem living a life outside the church knowing no Christians until, you know, really I was an adult. Hmm. I just, the, the area here is so large. It's such an urban area. You know, the more, the closer the city is to the ocean, the closer a city is to, you know, as large, the larger a city is and the closer a city is to large universities, the more secular the city is likely to be. Hmm. And I'm in an area that I didn't, I wasn't like being raised in the religious South. It was very easy to grow up, but not even give Christianity a second thought here. Hmm. So had you even yeah. ha- ever heard the gospel before then? Um, no. As a matter of oh, fact, wow. as I was, um, well, had I ever heard someone, I'm sure I had heard people uh, preach uh, pieces of the gospel, but I wasn't going to sit long enough to hear the whole thing. And, right. and again, I remember for a lot of us, whatever is being said just kind of bounces off because it makes no sense to us, right? right. So so I remember, though, investigating the, the claims of the gospel writers and, and determining that I felt that those claims were reliable historically, but still not understanding why Jesus had to die on a cross. In other words, you could, under, you could um, come to the conclusion that the Gospels are true, yet still not understand the Gospel. Yeah, you know? yeah. That, 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 that's a big point that uh, Dr. Uh, James White makes, is that with, without understanding that the Bible is God's word breathed, we don't, yeah. we, you know, yes, uh, Christ rose from the dead, but in like an evolutionary standpoint, that that's entirely possible. You you need a revelatory piece of the puzzle to make sense of what what that means and, and give it meaning. That's right. The problem I have, though, is that that you and, and, and I'm, I'm an evidentialist. I am deeply committed to an evidential approach to my faith for a reason, because I, I never... You could never have reached me and said, hey, we just need to understand that we presuppose that this Bible is the word of God. I understand the value it has in revealing truth. But remember, all my family was divided between atheists and Mormons. And the Mormons in my family believed the Book of Mormon was by its very nature. They presupposed to be telling us the truth. And and they said anywhere that it disagreed with the the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, that is part of the great apostasy, the, the, the falling away yeah. of the Christian church that was corrected and restored by Joseph. So you presuppose this, and you only can learn what's true about God by presupposing this, and you judge everything else against this. I just knew that that was not, that was not the way you're going to reach me. I would not trust what the New Testament said about Jim Wallace until I first learned or investigated to, to determine that I trusted what it said about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, once I found it to be reliable, now I could listen to what it had to say about me. <laughs> I, I simply could not. I was not interested in what your holy book says about me because your holy book says something about me. The Baha'is have a holy book that says something about me. The Muslims have a holy book that says something about me. 
why would your holy book be telling me something true about me? Well, first I determined it was telling me something true about Jesus of Nazareth. And I was like, okay, well, now I'm paying attention. Hmm. And, and I was willing to read what it said about me. So what do you think was the most important thing that you learned about Jesus of Nazareth that grasped, you know, that got your attention, that made you say, huh, okay, this is what's going on here? Well, I think that the, there's, one, there's one central claim, right, of all of Christianity that matters more than any other claim. It's the claim of the resurrection. Because Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, if this isn't true, well, then there's no authority in the voice of, first of all, it's all a lie. Because every claim related to Jesus centers on his deity as demonstrated by the resurrection. Look at the preaching of every apostle in the book of Acts. It's all going to come back to that foundational event, the resurrection, and that they were eyewitnesses of that resurrection, which he did make, as Peter says in Pentecost, many signs and wonders were performed by Jesus, including the resurrection, which demonstrated that this is the man predicted by the Old Testament. So it all comes down to that. And so for me, it all came down to that. You know, so it's, it's like we always say, Frank Turk and I say this a lot, that if, if you're somebody who rises from the dead, I have a tendency to pay attention. This <laughs> <laughs> is the truth of what separates Jesus from other historic wise teachers. And that's, that's what for me, it all came down to, to really working on this one issue. Hmm. I would never have been open to the idea that anyone in history could ever rise from the grave. Uh, and and around, got, around what year did, did this kind of take place? Well, I was 35, so it was uh, 96-ish. So did, did, did you draw upon um, uh, scholars or did it was this you sat down and only applied your method? Like, uh, you know, we we now have just uh, an overabundance. I mean, there's you, there's Lee Strobel that you, you mentioned, there's Frank Turk, there's, you know, uh, you know, just a, a whole slew of, of people that we can turn to. That have, Like Gary Habermas has come and, and uh, spoken to a group in yep. uh, by our college. And, and we've, I think we've come to uh, understand more about uh, the transmission of the gospel and, and, and yeah. just, uh, you know, different argumentation that, that uh, have gone out of vogue and then come back in and uh, new ones that have been made. Were there people that, that you re- relied upon on or, or was this kind of you sat down and you just applied the method that you're, you describe in stuff like cold case Christianity? Yeah, so I can honestly say that back in 96, I know that Lee's book had just come out maybe a couple of years earlier. Yeah, I wasn't the case for Christ. I, yeah, I just didn't know about it. Mm. Um, uh, he was actually about a year later on our staff at Saddleback Church, uh, at the church where I was uh, attending. And uh, But, you know, I just didn't know much about his book in time to really... And I think really, if you think of, look at that book, it, it kind of started an explosion of apologetics because all of the people who he introduced in that book, I think were largely unknown at the time or were just starting to really become known in the popular imagination. Mm-hmm. And he's interviewed people now, you know, everyone knows who those folks are. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, maybe it was just me uh, being a non-Christian that I just didn't know that there was a whole field of work out there. I didn't even know Charles McDowell, <laughs> like, you know, evidence demands a verdict. Yeah. I just didn't have access to those resources. I knew, though, the way the template that I use to determine if an eyewitness is reliable. And so you'll see in my book, and I think I might refer to, to some experts in the book, but really, it, the book doesn't do that. It, 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 I, I, I'm also extremely, and I'll just tell you guys this, and I tell it to a lot of people. If you've got a PhD behind your name, I mean, that's going to have a lot of weight. <laughs> that's 
strange only because in my criminal trials, both sides will trot out somebody with letters behind their name, Mm -hmm. speaking about the exact same piece of evidence in front of the jury. And both people who have letters behind their name will say that the best inference is exactly the opposite from the first guy. <laughs> so it turns out that, that, that if, if you just rely on experts, I mean, we ask the jurors to go back to what it is they are talking about. So for me, the most it would have been helpful, I think, is if I had known who these experts were so I could be pointed back to what it is they were talking about. Because in the end, I asked jurors to go back to the evidence. Remember, this expert's just giving you his inference from the evidence. But you get to make your own inference from the evidence. You don't have to agree with that expert on either side. Now, it's good to have a broad spectrum of, of people who give you their opinion about what this best inference is. But if I, you go to my talks, for example, you will not hear me trot out the names of experts. So-and-so says this about the gun. I don't care what anybody says about it. Let me show you what the base evidence looks like you can make your own decision that's what my talks are all about i do not cite experts hmm. and so when you were doing your your investigation you looked at the primary source document the scriptures my guess is to kind yeah. of make your own decision with regard to what it was saying right is that is that what the i hear you saying and i did this also with the book of mormon because i did not have <clears throat> i my family when they saw me becoming interested you know my dad's not a believer he's an atheist but my dad's second wife is a Mormon and I have six half brothers and sisters all raised LDS. And one of them started to go, you know, Hey, here's a book of Mormon. So I went out and bought the entire quad, which is the old <laughs> New Testament book of Mormon doctrines and covenants for a great price. Mm-hmm. And I read through all of it, hmm. applying the same uh, methodology to the book of Mormon that I was applying to the new Testament. I remember I read the book of Mormon before I read the old Testament. Hmm. So I had to really kind of, and sift. I wasn't sure what if either of these made any sense. And, you know, I really wasn't out to prove the Book of Mormon wrong because I think I would have been very comfortable within the context of my religious family, who were not religious, but, I mean, my my immediate family, there's no believers anywhere, but my dad's second family does have Mormon believers. I would have been more than happy to join them. Hmm. Not true. So I, I couldn't jump in. Would but, you ever but, consider writing a book on on what you did with well, the Book of Mormon? I, I've, I've written a chapter on a book by uh, Eric Johnson on how to witness to Mormons, mm. in which I kind of walk through. And I've got a, a blog article on my website at coldcasechristianity.com that's very extensive. It just talks about the system as it's applied to the Book of Mormon. And so you can get a sh- chance to see why you would, you know, I mean, I don't know why anybody... But again, when you ask most Christians why they are a Christian, they don't tell you they went through this process to become right. a Christian. Right. I bet you probably less than 1% of Christians went through any kind of evidential process to determine Christianity was true. Yeah. The so, vast majority will tell you they, they became Christians because they were raised that way or they had an experience that demonstrated for them that Christianity was true. Right. Which is the exact same two things that my Mormon family tells Said me. Why the same not. thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so with regard to the system, briefly uh, – can you briefly explain what, how the, what the system is and how it works? In well, we have jury instructions in California that help jurors determine if uh, a witness is telling the truth and could be considered reliable. And it's like 13 questions that we allow jurors to think about as they're listening to witnesses. They just break down into four categories, and here they are. Number one, was the witness really there? Can you demonstrate that he was there? Sometimes people will say they saw something, but actually we determined they weren't even in the state. Yeah. So it's all a lie. Two, have they been um, consistent 
um, or can they be corroborated in some way? Is there something now? Remember, corroboration and verification is always touch point. So if you have a witness, if you have a, a video of the event, well, the video acts like the witness. So that's not going to corroborate. That's actually a witness. But if you're going to corroborate a living eyewitness in some way, it's only going to be a fraction of his, his or her statement. Because if you told me you jumped over the counter, uh, and this guy took over the counter and screamed at the teller and pointed a gun at her and demanded money. Well, I might be able to find a palm print to corroborate the witness's statement on the counter, but the palm print will not tell me what he was wearing or any of the other aspects of the witness's statement. What did he say? Was he carrying a gun? That palm print's not going to tell me anything. So remember, I'm looking for corroborative evidence, but I expect it to be only a fraction of the overall statement. Three, did they change their story over time? Or have they been honest and accurate consistently? And four, do they possess a bias that would uh, cause them to want to lie to me? So these are the things that I'm looking at in eyewitnesses. And I decided, well, can I apply that strategy to the gospel authors? So my strategy and my approach is different than, say, for example, years later, I was reading, um, uh, Sean McDowell became a friend of mine. Uh, we were taking students on mission trips. And um, I finally got a copy of the second edition of his dad's book back in those days. Mm -hmm. Not the one that's out right now, but there was a second edition right. in the middle. It was more evidence, I think, was it? Yeah, whatever it was called. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. And I saw, you know, and I've worked with Josh and Sean, and I've seen the approach they take. They'll talk about, well, how many pieces of, man how many manuscripts do we have? What is the distance between the event and the first man? That None of that stuff matters to me. Eyewitnesses come down to those four things. And if those, if the, if the gospel authors pass the test in those four areas, why would we not consider them reliable? Well, it comes down to they pass the test in those four areas, but we don't, we have hesitancy about their reliability because they include miracles. Look, if, if I always said this, if the gospels did not include miracles, how many people would find that the story is preposterous and discard Jesus of Nazareth as a historical character? Nobody would. You know, also, I see a lot right now is that there's a lot of scholarship and, and uh, torment right now occurring related to contradictions that are seen between the Gospels. And I see people who are now, at least I see a lot in the last five years, that people will say, well, the genre of eyewitness accounts in the first century allowed for such a thing. There, I'm going to tell you right now, there is no reason to jump to some literary theory related to genre. Because current eyewitnesses on an event that happens today, if there are five eyewitnesses, they will end up having the exact same amount of variation in their accounts. Hmm. I know this only because I do it, okay? So I don't jump to, oh, well, you know, maybe the genre of eyewitnesses <laughs> included this. No, this is just what, now, now, can we determine what really happened? And by the way, defense attorneys love this. Because they know there will be differences. In every case I've ever had, the defense attorney tries to play on those differences to convince a jury that no one should be trusted. Mm -hmm. And I never lost a case because people understand. We even have a jury instruction that tells the jury that just because there are differences in their story, they are not to be dis discredited. Because people see things differently. And they remember different details. And they put things in different orders and doesn't make a point. And, and I, I'll tell you that if you were to go back to the first century and you were the first or second reader of these documents, there were still people there that could explain why they sound and look differently. The problem is, is as you get 30 years down the road, now all my witnesses are dead on a cold case. I don't have anyone to explain why you gave the statement in that order or why you omitted this part or why you said this thing doesn't make any sense. And I'm 30 years down the road. I can't go back to the scene and go, oh, yeah, that's why. 
So I just don't see any reason to jump to genre or to jump to a literary theory to reconcile differences because you will see some dramatic differences in eyewitness testimony. And by the way, our goal as detectives is to preserve those differences. Hmm. So that's the first instruction we have. Dispatch calls me in the middle of the night to go to a homicide. I only have one instruction. Have the officers who are on the scene separate the eyewitnesses because I want the differences to be maintained. Hmm. Interesting. It'll help me to put the case. To, I'm the puzzler. Did all you start puzzling before <laughs> I get so, so that's that's kind of I, my view of it was that the differences actually in the accounts when I first read them were the thing that triggered for me, you know, I should apply this template. Hmm. Because this looks and feels textually like, like eyewitness accounts. The level of variation is exactly what I would expect. Interesting. So, so I, 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 the, the, the kind of the theory that uh, th- this is uh, people writing at a later time to kind of have a, uh, you know, uh, put Mark in a, a priestly position and 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 k- kind of have this uh, uh, tie everything to, back to Levitical priests and and tie everything to Jesus. You you, you see this, that theory is being less likely because you have these variations where you have people who emphasize different uh, uh, details, uh, like uh, for example in uh, John two where he talks about um, uh, leaving Capernaum, like that that was John's hometown, and so he just makes this offhanded remark as as if we would if if Tony and I were to say oh and we passed through Kalamazoo and no one would know where Kalamazoo is at but we would because hey that's our hometown right well there's there's some places in the Gospel of John uh, a pool for example that was destroyed in 70 AD but mm-hmm. he writes about it as though everyone knows where that is because it probably is pre 78 there's lots of ways to kind of dig out details yeah. about dating and all kinds of things from the gospel that's all flowing good. I am just less inclined when I when I know that the, the tail that's wagging the dog on a literary theory is an effort to reconcile differences between the accounts. That's when I say, hold on, you don't need to develop a theory to reconcile differences any more than you would need to develop a theory today. Because I guarantee you, if I have a homicide tonight and I get called out, there will be differences that I just know. Now, what the great thing about it in live, I work cold cases. I can't always go back and talk to the witness. But on a fresh case, if I'm talking to witnesses and I see there's a problem, I can go back and ask the first witness. And I won't tell them what the second witness said. I'll just say, tell me again about this, trying to see if they'll add that detail that you admitted the first time Hmm. to reconcile it. Unfortunately, we don't have that ability with the gospel. We can't go back and re-interview the sources and, and ask kind of to mine out why there might be some variations between the accounts. Now, the problem I think it comes up, though, is that for Christians, we're like, hey, well, this is the inerrant word. How do we reconcile inerrancy? If, would God allow the eyewitnesses to have the level of variation we would expect to have between eyewitnesses? I think he would if he wanted us to be able to test them later. Hmm. Hmm. So I always look at it and say, if God was de- determined to present us with four accounts that, that have all the earmarks of reliable eyewitness testimony, he achieved it. Hmm. Because we have four accounts that, it's my experience, a lot of eyewitnesses are as varied and different as eyewitness accounts are in real cases in real time. So I, I had great confidence that, that that's now that's the goal God has in his inerrant word. He has achieved it. 
Yeah. You have to define what we mean by inerrancy, I think, to begin with. Yeah, always defining terms is important. And I I think, too, it's it's one of those things where uh, atheists kind of, uh, or at least uh, critics who are being uncharitable or uh, who are kind of parroting what they've heard, uh, you know, even Bart Ehrman comes about with with this theory of like, you know, I, I need uh, three signatured copies of of the Gospel of Mark, and then you know I would take it as as confidence that Mark wrote it. But at, at the same time, you know, if if, if let, let's say that all four gospel writers wrote exactly the same thing. Well, you would just make that decision that, well, whoever whoever the author was just wrote his name different four different times. And so what 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 they're suggesting is, you know, everything has to be said exactly the same. But you, you would say, well, there's collusion here, there's a conspiracy, or there's just a single author who just wrote different names on, on, a, on a sheet of paper. Yeah, I, I actually think that, that that regardless of how this would have turned out, and I know this is the case, right? I mean, we do cases, and regardless of how we put them together, there'll be a defense attorney who will develop a theory about how to defeat our case. Um, this is just what happens. And if you don't get to a case, and you think, oh, now I've got this one. I've learned from my other cases. <laughs> better. So now I know when I go to trial, that defense attorney is just going to say, hey, you know what? We have nothing to say. No, the defense attorney is going to spend months developing a robust theory to defeat ours. That's what defense attorneys do. God bless them. I think they, they, there's, a, there's a need to be properly. De- I'm not an anti-defense attorney guy. Uh, I talk about this in the book. That there are th- three different kinds of defense attorneys: people who truly believe their client is innocent, people who truly believe that, that even if um, you know their client isn't innocent, that, that the system works best and, and requires all of us to do our best in defending people. And that's probably the lion's share, by the way, of, of defense attorneys. And then the third is the people who just are love money and they'll take any client and do anything for the money. That's a very small percentage in my view. Mm-hmm. The biggest percentage of people who think that even though my client is guilty, I have a robust duty to defend him to the best of my ability. And so that means that when I walk in, I don't care how strong my case is on the prosecution side, there will be a very, if you've got the right attorney who's good, got a skill set. And uh, by the way, if, I, if my case was slightly different, he would adjust. If my case was entirely different, he would adjust to that. And so I think that this is true also of any kind of skeptic who is pushing back against a theory, a, a, a claim that regardless of what our claims would have been, regardless of whatever you imagine, if I had documents that were like X, there'd be no complaining. Oh, no, there would be. <laughs> there would be a robust defense offered against that version of the Gospels. So, so I just I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, OK, well, that's just the way that's just the way this works. I think in the end that there is a robust laboratory of epistemology. How do you know what we know? How do you defend what we know? How do you communicate what is true? That occurs every day in courtrooms across America. And and this doesn't happen. I mean, you might write a, a paper uh, and have your other uh, equals, literary critics, um, maybe peer review the paper. But what happens in criminal trials is you have a theory about a claim and you present the theory about the claim and you get the test. Number one, how do I know a theory is true? How do I know the claim is true? Two, how do I even communicate it well to a jury? What works, what doesn't work in communicating the claim? This is a laboratory for discovering truth and communicating truth to others that very few other disciplines get to experience repeatedly. That's where I've always felt like, you know, this is why so many books about Christianity, defending the Christian worldview, have been written with titles like that involve some form of evidence, courtroom, or trial, right? Yet they're not written by anybody who spent any time in a criminal trial. So, so it turns out they're right. But this is the best analogy. This is the best place, I think, to learn how to discover truth and communicate it to others. 
But unless you've been doing that for your career, uh, you're kind of on the outside wondering what it looks like inside that room. Yeah. So I, all I wanted to do in cold case was to show you what it looks like inside the room. 